This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Hi, welcome back to the podcast. The topic that I want to discuss today is one of practical importance, and that is what do you do when you're called by the intensive care unit and you're told that the patient who's on a mechanical ventilator, who's orally intubated, has a significant cuff leak, um, and they're having a little bit of a difficult time uh, ventilating the patient. And, you know, what is the thought process that goes in the evaluation of that patient, and how do we go about basically fixing the problem. Well, first of all, you need to kind of recognize that even a bad airway is better than no airway. So you don't want to make any impetuous decisions. I remember once getting called um, on one night on call, and I was called to the SICU, and there was a morbidly obese um, male who was there for some gastric bypass surgery. The patient was mechanically ventilated in the post-operative period. And I was called and said that they were going to just change out the tracheal tube. And I really wanted to kind of put the brake on that and say, well, let's slow down, let's see what's going on, and let's kind of really assess what's really happening here. Because remember, peop, you know, people don't die for lack of a, a piece of plastic. They die because of lack of patency of an airway. And so what happens, in my opinion, all too often is that when we say A is for airway, people take that A is for airway and think airway is a noun. Airways actually should be approached as airway being a verb. I need to maintain some patency so I can ventilate and oxygenate this patient. So what's potentially going on? Well, the first thing you need to probably think about and consider is what's the position of that endotracheal tube. Uh, Perhaps all too commonly is that an endotracheal tube will migrate into a proximal position. It may actually be sitting right at the cords or supraglottic patient is really just pending extubation. And how do we go about evaluating that? Well, the most obvious would be, you know, perhaps get an x-ray. And and by looking at the x-ray, assess where's that tip of that endotracheal tube in regards to um, the the vocal cords or really the carina. We want the tip of the endotracheal tube to rest about uh, two centimeters at least uh, above that carina. And you you want it to be below uh, the clavicles. The other way that you can potentially evaluate the position of the intake tracheal tube is basically dropping a bronchoscope down the endotracheal tube. Now, this is, is nice because it may give you a sense of where the tip of the tube is, but it also provides a means of potentially correcting it. Because if that tube seems high, there's really two things you can do that's reasonably safe to advance it. And what I like to do is put a, bronchos- a bronchoscope down and advance the bronchoscope, and I'm looking at the airway once I get down past the tip of the tube. And I know that I'm if my bronchoscope is sitting in the right main stem bronchus, and if I advance that uh, endotracheal tube over that bronchoscope, then I'm not going to kind of flip that tube out. What I worry about is when the tube is in a very proximal or very high position, if you just advance it blindly and the tube is high, the tube actually may kind of flip itself out and you now have your patient kind of in an extubated or without an airway. So that's why the bronchoscope is a good way of approaching this. Another thing that you could do is take either an inhibiting bougie, an Eshman bougie or an Eshman stylus, or like a Cook Airway Exchange catheter. What typically will happen to that is, is that as you advance it uh, and it hits the chronic, if the patient's not sedated or paralyzed, the patient will begin to cough, 
Actually, I take that as a good sign. It indicates that I have my, my catheter or my bougie in the right position. And then I advance the endotracheal tube over that bougie or the Cook Airway Exchange catheter. Now, the Cook Airway Exchange catheter has some uh, inherent advantages to it is one that it has a lumen. If you ever look at these, they're reasonably flexible, significantly long, and um, they have a very small lumen. But what you have to realize is when you open up the kit, it also has an adapter that will fix onto a uh, a boo bag. So you can basically rapidly ventilate the patient, much like you would for a neurocrecotherotomy. So you can actually do some oxygenation of the patient. You won't be very successful at ventilation, but you may get some success oxygenating the patient and maintaining the saturation. And when you've got a saturation, you've got time. And when you've got time, you have options. So let's say we've checked the position of our endotracheal tube, and, and our tube's in good position. Um, but when the pressure is put um, into the cuff, we get a slow air leak. Well, this brings up a couple of things. Is Well, what is adequate pressure in a cuff? Well, adequate pressure in an endotracheal tube cuff is considered to be less than 25 centimeters of water pressure. 25 centimeters of water pressure or less. I would refine that comment even more. If you looked in the book, that's what they would say. I would say the adequate amount of pressure in an endotracheal tube is enough to prevent an air leak and not to exceed 25 centimeters of water pressure. Because if you're able to seal that endotracheal tube cuff at a pressure of 15 centimeters of water, that's adequate. And the reason why we don't want to see anything greater than 25 centimeters of pressure is that you can actually cause necrosis of the uh, tracheal mucosa. This can lead to complications such as necrosis of the mucosa, tracheal stenosis, rupture of the trachea, tracheal esophageal fistulas. Uh, so this, the complications of overinflating that balloon are significant. Now, most intensive care units will have a protocol of some degree where a respiratory therapist will go around with a special device and they'll hook it up to the pilot balloon of the endotracheal tube and they'll measure the pressure and they can adjust the pressure down. But you do not want it to exceed 25 centimeters of pressure. And if you can get away with less, get away with less. So where could you possibly be leaking air if you've got a slow, persistent leak from uh, your endotracheal tube? Well, the most obvious and the one that I think people jump to the most is the cuff. Um, and how could you potentially get a cuff? Well, you may have overinflated it. Uh, you may have snagged the balloon on insertion uh, on a tooth or the laryngoscope. Um, the other option is that you had a leak in your endotracheal tube balloon before you inserted it. So this is why you always want to test the balloon. One of the things that I do if I test a balloon and it's not something like a crash intubation, you know, it's reasonably controlled, is I'll inflate the balloon and hold the pressure with a syringe there because most leaks are not a rapid leak where it's a total failure of the balloon. Most leaks are kind of a slow, progressive leak. So you want to give time when you test that balloon to see if you're actually losing pressure. So that's one place where you could have a leak. The other place that you may have a leak has to involve the mechanism to basically fill the cuff. And that's the part that hangs out of the patient on the proximal and the tracheal tube that you attach the syringe to, or what we call the pilot balloon. The pilot balloon is a part where it's like that little finger-type pillow where you can feel and see if the cuff is inflated. It's got that little spring valve that you attach to a syringe to inflate it with air. You can have a leak there as well. Um, Now the question comes as to how can I differentiate where is my leak? Is it at the pilot balloon area or is it the cuff? Well, the 
perhaps the simplest way to do this is to inflate the try to inflate the cuff and take the pilot balloon and the spring valve and put it in a glass of water because if there's a leak there what you'll see is you'll see air bubbling okay now if you've got air bubbling you've identified that your leak is in the proximal portion or at the pilot balloon and valve now that's important because based on the clinical circumstances i can potentially fix this now the word fix we really should put in italics because what we can do if if we ha- and the circumstances would be I'd have somebody who I don't want to extubate and reintubate somebody who may have a horrible anatomy maybe they're a fresh burn and they're 20 liters into the resuscitation and getting a new tube in them is going to be a very high risk circumstance uh, or you know maybe they've got a grade four airway something going on where or, you know perhaps they've got ARDS and when you pop them off the ventilator or you suction them they go into a deep desaturation and you spend the next 20 minutes trying to get their sats up uh, to something uh, uh, that's consistent with life. So this is what you could potentially do in those circumstances is that if you cut the pilot balloon off and you take a doll tip needle uh, you want to make sure you have the right gauge doll tip needle so you'd want to get an endotracheal tube of similar size uh, before you did this the one that's not attached to the patient and you could put a doll tip needle into that tubing and then put a syringe on top of uh, basically screw that syringe onto that needle that's now within the lumen of the tubing of the endotracheal tube now how do I, once I put the syringe on and inflate with air, how do I keep um, um, the air in the cuff without losing it? Is you could take a hemostat and put it across the tubing where the pilot balloon previously was. Now, this is going to keep the balloon up. Uh, you will hopefully uh, not have, uh, continue to lose tidal, vo- tidal ventilation. Uh, there is an inherent problem with this, and one is you've modified a medical device. That's something that I would never um, suggest that you have to do or that you should do because um, there's real problems with that. But this may create a situation where now you've got options. You're not losing a third or a half of your tidal volume because of the cuff leak. And so now we can figure out, gee, maybe we can get uh, better equipment up here to change the tube. Maybe I can get more seasoned personnel, more experience. Maybe if the airway is so bad, maybe I can even move the patient to the operating room where I can have a full anesthesia complement and have the immediate ability to proceed to a surgical airway if needed. Because what have I done? I've created time, and by creating time, I've created options. There was an old Civil War general that said, never let the enemy choose the battlefield. And I like to think about that when I'm faced with these kind of problems, is that by by creating at least short-term solutions, I'm creating options, and I'm not allowing the clinical circumstances to choose the battlefield as to what I what I'm going to do and where I'm going to do it. So now I've got that cuff up. Now, if I have a a leak on the balloon of the endotracheal tube, that's a little bit more difficult problem to deal with. So what are some of the things? Well, as we've mentioned, we can change out the endotracheal tube. There's bougies for that. There's Cook Airway Exchange catheters. We could even do it fiber optically. But if the clinical circumstances are such that they're not good, do I have other options? Well, let's think about... um, uh, what's going on with the medica- mechanical ventilator. There's several different modes or control modes of ventilation. Perhaps the two that are used most commonly in intensive care are volume control modes and pressure control modes. And 
you get called to the ICU, you're losing a third or a half of your total volume out of this leaking in the tracheal tube, what am I going to do? And again, until we do something definitive, can we make a bad situation a little bit more controlled, reduce the chaos? Well, let's think about what pressure control ventilation is and what volume control ventilation is. When you have somebody on pressure control ventilation, I set basically a peak answeratory pressure. The ventilator, when it cycles or triggers, basically opens the valve, the flow of gas initiates up to the point when that, that ventilator hits that particular pressure. Once that ventilator hits that pressure, the ventilator shuts off and it goes through the expiratory phase of the ventilatory cycle. Now, on a volume control mode of ventilation, what happens is the time triggers or the patient triggers the ventilator, the, the valves open, the flow of gas begins, and it will go until the ventilator has delivered that set volume of gas. That's the difference between pressure control and volume control. Now, let's think about this. If I have a leak from my endotracheal tube and my patient is in distress uh, because I'm losing a lot of the volume and I have that patient on pressure control ventilation, what's, where, where am I going to have a problem is that the ventilator is going to open up the, flo the valves, flow the gas, and the, the ventilator is going to have some significant problems getting to that pressure. And so depending on the rest of your ventilator settings, it's going to maintain a very long eye time because it's never going to get to that particular pressure, or the ventilator may compensate on some modes by increasing the flow of gas. As you increase the flow of gas, you're actually going to basically increase the rate of the air leak you would uh, around that endotracheal tube. So one of the things you would want to do is probably put the patient on a volume control mode of ventilation. Now, if I need to vent, if I know that I'm losing a third of my tidal volume, and say I want to deliver 600 cc's uh, to that patient to get an adequate minute ventilation, and I'm losing a third or 200 cc's uh, out, out the cuff, one of the things I could do is I could increase the tidal volume. And by increasing the tidal volume, I'm actually going to, uh, uh, if I'm losing a significant amount, uh, I'll, I'll be able to deliver more because I can control the amount of leaking because I'm, 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 it's, the ventilator is still going to deliver that set volume even though I'm leaking a certain portion of it. And when you look at the ventilator, it's going to tell you what your exhale tidal volumes are. So if I, if I set a liter to tidal volume, it'll say exhale tidal volume 600. That means I'm losing 400. Okay. Now, other things you can do to kind of quote, tweak the ventilator, is look at your eye time. Your eye time or your inspiratory time, because your inspiratory time basically goes to the flow of the gas. If I deliver uh, a liter tidal volume, these are, I've never delivered these tidal volumes for a lot of patients, but it just makes the math a little bit more tolerable. But if I deliver a liter tidal volume and my set rate is 15, and I've got an IDE ratio of 1 to 1. Uh, if my set rate is 15, it means I've got a 4-second cycle time. Time for inhale, exhale is 4 seconds. If I have the IDE ratio set to 1 to 1, that means I'm delivering a liter of gas over 2 seconds. If I can extend that I time, either by slowing the mechanical rate or changing the IDE ratios, by decreasing the flow of gas, I can actually pressurize the lungs more slowly, even though I'm on a volume control mode of ventilation, and hopefully abrogate the extent of my air leak until I can get a position where I can actually change the endotracheal tube. Now, keep in mind, you can actually ventilate people pretty effectively 
even in the presence of a cuff leak. And the, the, the method that we use frequently in burn patients is called volume diffusive respiration. And we will intentionally drop the cuff to create uh, an air leak. And what that does in a patient who has smoke inhalation, who has a tremendous amount of secretions because they've basically uh, sloughed the mucosa of their tracheal and bronchial trees, uh, what we can do is by dropping the balloon, we actually take that and it brings up a lot of the secretions around the balloon, where the balloon is or the balloon's not inflated, brings those secretions up to the mouth where we can actually improve our pulmonary toilet. And by doing this, we actually improve the convective movement of gas through the lungs. What does that mean? convection, we oxygenate people through diffusion, we ventilate people or get rid of carbon dioxide through convection or convective movement of gas. So we'll actually be able to ventilate the patient, i.e. get rid of CO2, very effectively with the balloon down. So next time you have a situation where somebody's telling you, I have a cuff leak, you have a little bit of a paradigm that you can sit there and think about, okay, well, is the tube too high and do I need to reposition it? Is it leaking at the cuff? Is it leaking at the pilot balloon? Is this a circumstance that I want to dive right into? Am I in crisis mode here? And if it is, can I take some things to reduce the level of of mayhem and the crisis and so I could get better people and better equipment uh, to the patient or move the patient? to better people or better equipment to make securing that airway safer. Uh, So those are some of the things that you can do in regards to management of that airway when you have a leaking cuff. On a related topic is what happens when you get a call uh, about somebody who's extubated. And it's, it's interesting is that people, you'll get a call, and I remember these calls very uh, vividly when I was a resident, and they would say, you know, bed, bed 14 is extubated, and, and people would run to the room, there'd be lots of drama, you'd see a crash cart in the room, you'd see respiratory therapy, and about, you know, 50 nurses, you walk into the room, and it's already a foregone conclusion that you're going to re-intubate the patient. Now... You know, this patient may it may be a circumstance where the patient was on, you know, 20 a peep uh, and had, you know, on 70% FIO2. That person's probably going to get reintubated pretty quickly. But this idea of people extubating, it's interesting, is that this is a metric of bad quality in intensive care units. If I have a patient, I, I have say I have a 10-bed ICU, and I have a patient self-extubate, that considers this is not a good ICU. This is a this is a a quality problem that we would allow a patient to self extubate. So, well, what can I do to prevent people from self extubating? Is one thing I can do or extubate the patient. How do I never extubate the patient? Well, I can trach everybody. Um, yeah, it seems kind of extreme, but it, it is not something that I recommend, and it's not something that I do. But it is a behavior that people are basically incentivized to do. Why would that be? Well, because when you perform a tracheostomy, you'll never have to extubate the patient, and so therefore you're never going to get a negative quality metric. The other problem that comes with that is that uh, hospitals have been reimbursed on the past based on what's called diagnostic-related groups. And if somebody is uh, on a ventilator for 96 hours and gets a tracheostomy, the hospital then gets to put the patient into a very high diagnostic-related group, which it has associated with it a more favorable uh, reimbursement strategy. So the incentive there is to basically trach people, 
Um, and by doing that, I put the patient into a, a better position financially for the hospital. And then I also don't have to get the bad doctor demerit for having my patient potentially self-extubate. The other thing that is um, intriguing nowadays is that there has been a tremendous amount of written about how we should be doing sedation in the intensive care unit on mechanically ventilated patients. Um, uh, Wes Ely and his colleagues here at Vanderbilt have done an amazing amount of work. Uh, we've done some of that research in our burn unit about what is the impact of sedation on ICU delirium and even survival. And this is a, a very broad description of what they have found, but the description of what they found is that Benzodiazepines could be potentially toxic to patients, and they increase the, the duration on uh, ventilators, they decrease survival, and they contribute to the development of delirium. So not very good. Uh, and so as part of that strategy, what they've recommended is that we should decrease the amount of sedation. And by doing that, we reduce delirium and we actually improve mortality in the intensive care unit. However, that seems those are very, that's, those are very positive attributes in what we want to see in patients. Decrease delirium, improve survival. But by doing that, we also have associated with it an increased rate of self-extubations. But when you're called to see somebody who's potentially self-extubated, what should you do? Well, there was a study done years ago, and I wish I, I don't have it immediately available, but I quoted a lot to my residents. It was done in Europe. It was a multi-institutional trial, and I really hate quoting a study when I can't give you chapter verse. But what they found out is when patients self-extubated, half of those patients didn't require reintubation, which is really telling. It means two things. First of all, on any given day, half the people in those intensive care units didn't need to be mechanically ventilated. Secondly, what it tells me is that when I go see somebody who's self-extubated, what I need to do is I need to pause and see what they're doing. How are they controlling their airway? Are they flying okay? Because they may not need to be reintubated. They may need to be closely observed. They may need to put on supplement oxygen. They may need a lot of pulmonary toilet. They may even be reintubated perhaps you know, in a few hours. You have to use your clinical judgment. But don't always jump to the conclusion that somebody who self-extubates requires a mandatory reintubation. Well, once again, thanks for listening to Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy uh, from Vanderbilt University, the Department of Surgery there. Uh, if you uh, find the uh, podcast helpful, by all means, we encourage you to leave positive feedback on iTunes. That is very helpful to us. Uh, we do have uh, a IC Rounds page uh, on Facebook. Uh, the other, um, you can also get the, the podcast uh, through a couple of different means. Stitcher now has it. Get the latest downloads on Stitcher. There is a great uh, application called Podcaster where you can download all your podcasts and, and you don't need to be hot syncing to your uh, computer and you can search IC rounds on Podcaster and you will be able to uh, dial that in and have access to the most uh, recent podcasts as they come up. There's also an app that's been designed by Wizard Media. The app is kind of neat is that you can have all of the podcasts available to you on demand, not just the most recent one, and that way you can sit there as things come up clinically, you need to dial in on a lecture, push that. You may have to wait a few minutes because we've got these podcasts that have been going on for years and years now, and so it takes a little bit some uh, for the older podcast for the server to pull it up. So you might have to be a little bit patient with that. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.